Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Critical Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Lyle Ragoon, and uh, thanks for uh, coming along, everybody. Been, uh, you know, very interesting time for us in the in the world of uh, toxicology, at least. Uh, lots of interesting tox news. But before I get into that, you know, I've been away for a few weeks now. Actually, I uh, I recorded something that I was going to post uh, for the uh, podcast before I left for my uh, trip. And um, it, it didn't turn out so well. I was, I was trying out a new program. It didn't work so well. So um, anyway, I was going to try to have something up before I before I left. And um, I had a really nice trip. I uh, went to Korea for a couple weeks and um, had a good time there. Gave a, gave a keynote presentation at the uh, Korea Society of Environmental Health and uh, Toxicology meeting. Uh, it was in beautiful Busan, Korea, um, right on the beach. Beautiful hotel. Beautiful beach. Really great trip. And then uh, from there, went to um, another part of Korea, visit some family, and then went to uh, uh, Seoul, uh, South Korea. And, and Seoul is just just an amazing city. It's huge. Absolutely humongous. I keep forgetting how big it is. I've only been there twice now. It is. It's really big. And when you're driving from one side of Seoul to the other, <laughs> it's even bigger. Um Anyway, I was I was mentioning there, there's a lot of interesting things going on in toxicology right now. Uh, let's see here. Uh, probably here, at least in the United States, uh, really big news is uh, the uh, Biden-Harris administration announcement that uh, they're going to replace uh, lead service lines in our drinking water systems. That's that's great news. Um, some other really good news uh, that's out there right now uh, happens to do with uh, glyphosate. This is coming from Europe. Um, in Europe, they've decided to extend the uh, registration for glyphosate for yet another 10 years. So that's really good news. It, um, from what I was hearing, it was kind of up in the air. It wasn't exactly sure what was going to happen with glyphosate. Uh, the German authorities evidently um, abstained from the vote. And uh, there was enough um, uh, other countries who decided to extend the um registration of glyphosate. So that's, that's really good news. Um, and keep in mind that, uh, what this does is this, this kind of reaffirms, uh, what, you know, those of us in the field of toxicology already knew, which is that really glyphosate is a very safe chemical. And I don't put much stock into the claims about, um, not Hodgkin's lymphoma from, from glyphosate. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There isn't very good evidence for it either. Um, most of the evidence for it is, is really poor. And uh, I I'd say that, you know, based on my read of the science, glyphosate does not cause non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, the EPA agrees with that statement. And, uh, now we know for a fact that the European uh, commission also agrees, uh, that it does not cause uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, that the uh, benefits of glyphosate far outweigh any kind of risk that there is. And, you know, from a weed, weed science standpoint, um, glyphosate is, you know, a, a wonderful tool. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, glyphosate is the um, main active ingredient in most uh, Roundup preparations. Um, Roundup's kind of become a big brand now. So there's, there's Roundup that's uh, safe for grass, and that's, that's a different active ingredient. That's not glyphosate. But the Roundup, the classic Roundup that most of us grew up with, is, is the, the chemical... Uh, that is going to eradicate all you know vegetation within the area that you spray, 
and you can you can do very controlled sprays at your house, you know, so you can control just the weeds and not necessarily kill off your grass. Um, you know, it's been it's been extremely important for farmers over the years. So this was extremely great news. I was I was ecstatic to hear this um, that Europe decided to extend the registration of glyphosate for another ten years. So that's that's good news. Um, but t- today, what I wanted to focus on is, is something a little bit different. Um, you know, I, I've heard from some folks that uh, I've been I've been hammering on a lot of environmental tox issues uh, on on the podcast, and I haven't been talking about some of the other what I think is actually very interesting work that that I do. Um, and so, some folks have been asking, "Hey, you know, can can you talk a little bit more about some of the alcohol work that you do, or maybe some of the work on poisonings?" Uh, maybe some of the work on unintentional deaths due to uh, overdoses, you know, opioids and stuff like that. So I'm going to try to turn my focus a little bit more to some of the other stuff uh, that I've been working on. Uh, and, and every now and then, you know, who knows, I'll, I'll pop in, you know, whatever's fresh on my head. But um, this has come to a head recently. Um, and what I want to talk about is uh, what we call uh, phosphatidyl ethanol PETH. And so you might be asking, what, what in the world? Why, why is PETH so important? Well, let me tell you. So I'll give you, I'll give you some background. So PETH is a, is a test. It's, it's a blood test. And uh, what, what we're measuring is phosphatidyl um, ethanol. Phosphatidyl ethanol, it's a fatty acid. It uh, has, um, instead of choline as the head group, it has ethanol as its head group. And Phosphatidyl ethanol or PETH is formed anytime there is um, ethanol sitting near a specific enzyme that produces phosphatidylcholine, except now instead of using the choline, it's going to use ethanol instead. And so anytime you know somebody's been drinking, they are producing phosphatidylethanol. Kind of a neat test. Well, I don't remember when it was. It's it, For the past several years, though... Um, Family law cases have started, uh, you know, uh, family law judges have started looking at PETH. And um, there's been this interest in uh, phosphatidylethanol because you can't measure ethanol directly in somebody's blood uh, for very long. Ethanol doesn't stick around in, in our bodies for that long a period of time. So if you have a case where, you know, uh, maybe you've, you've got a... Um, a, a uh, co-parenting situation, and one of the uh, parents is not supposed to be drinking around the child. Um, the only, you know, we, we, the courts want a way of identifying whether or not somebody was drinking around the child, but at the same time, what the courts can't do is the courts, you know, can't come in necessarily and say, oh, we're going to demand a blood test right this second. You know, I mean, it, 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 it just doesn't work very well. It's, it's inconvenient for, for everybody. So instead, what they'll do is they might order you to go take a blood test the next day uh, after you with the child or a couple days later. You know, and, and there's, there's several biomarkers that can be used. There's uh, uh, ETG, there's PETH. Um, PETH has become more popular. The, the, what's interesting about PETH, though, is it'll stick around in your body for days and days. And because it doesn't degrade very quickly within our body and we don't excrete it very quickly, what ends up happening is 
if you, you could be someone who is not a problem drinker, you, you could be someone who does not have alcohol use disorder. So you're just drinking socially. You're drinking an acceptable amount. You're not getting drunk. But in doing that, you, you know, maybe you're drinking every day, every other day. You are increasing the amount of PETH that is in your body. And so then when somebody goes to do a blood test on you to measure your PETH levels, you could be someone who is just a, you know, like I said, just an average drinker, a safe drinker, someone who isn't getting drunk. And you could have extremely high levels of PETH. Now, when, when this becomes a problem is if you're one of these parents who's not supposed to be drinking around the child. And so let's say like you have the child on Thursday, right? And you're drinking, I don't know, Tuesday. Okay. So you just had a single drink. Maybe you just had, you know, a glass of wine on Tuesday. And then now you're going to have the child in your custody on Thursday. On Friday, you then get tested by the court. Well, guess what? You're going to have PETH levels that, you know, could be rather high. This becomes especially problematic if you're somebody who's been drinking a lot, right? Uh, but not, not a problem drinker. Maybe you drank on Monday. Maybe you drank on Sunday. Maybe you drank on that Friday, that Thursday, that Wednesday, right? So you've drank a little bit throughout this entire period of time. Again, you're not, you don't have alcohol use disorder. You're just drinking a normal amount. You're not drinking to get drunk. You're not drinking to really get all that buzzed, right? Now, you've been drinking all every day up until the day before you have the child in your custody. So you stop the day before you have the child in your custody, child's now in your custody, you get tested on Friday. You could have PETH levels that make it appear that, uh, you know, you, you've, been, you've been drinking for quite a while. No one can tell whether or not you were drinking on Thursday when you had custody of the child or not. That's the problem with PETH. The problem is you didn't drink on Wednesday. You didn't drink on Thursday when you had custody of the child. Friday, you get tested. You got these pretty high PETH levels. There are attorneys, family law attorneys, who are now trying to say, your PETH levels were so high. You had to have been drinking when the child was in your custody. And here's the thing. No, no, you didn't have to be drinking in order to have levels that high. You're drinking on all those other days before it. Okay. So it, it's kind of, it's, it's Peth, Peth is not a great tool for this use. Yet the family law courts are using this. They are using Peth as a tool to say, no, you, you were drinking when that child was there. And that's inappropriate. That is just highly, highly, highly inappropriate. And what a lot of, what, <laughs> and it just, it just drives me crazy. Some of the attorneys are using a paper uh, by uh, two authors, uh, Allwilling and Smith. Um, it was published, uh, what, back in 2018? Yeah, 2018. I got the paper in front of me right here in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. And what Owelling and Smith did was they, they, they acknowledge all the facts I just told you. They acknowledge the fact that, you know what, Peth, it sticks around a really long time. You know, depending upon how much you're drinking, I might still be able to detect Peth 30 days later. Think about that. Think about that. Depending on how much you've been drinking, I might be able to detect Peth levels 30 days later, right? 
So it's a crude tool. I can't use it to pinpoint when you were drinking. I need to actually have your drinking history in order to tell whether or not you were drinking when you had custody of that child. Well, if I need to have your drinking history, that kind of blows the whole purpose of the PETH test out of the water, doesn't it? Why in the world are we running a PETH test? That's my question. That's what I want to know too. Why on earth are we running these PETH tests? This is absolutely asinine. We need to stop doing that. Oh my God. So here, here's the deal. What O'Welling and Smith did, and this is what a lot of you know the attorneys I've seen are trying to bring up, is they're trying to say, well, did you know that O'Welling and Smith say that if you have a PETH level less than 20 nanograms per mil, that means you have light or no consumption. I'm reading it right here out of the paper. And if you have 20 to 200 nanograms per mil, that means that's significant consumption. How dare you? Right? So, okay. Oh, man. We got to break this down. Light or no consumption literally means you're, you're abstinent from drinking or you're drinking like very, very, very little within a seven-day period. Okay? I mean, very, very little. Um, 20 to 200 nanograms per mil Welling and Smith call this significant consumption. <laughs> this is this is this is where we have most people. Most people are in this range. They are moderate drinkers. Um, they are not people who have alcohol use disorder. Um, you know, based on the current definitions from the National Institute of Alcoholism and uh, Alcohol Abuse at the uh, National Institutes of Health. Uh, these are low risk categories. These are people who are not binge drinking. These are these are just normal, average, everyday people who are drinking socially and not getting drunk. The point where you start seeing, you know, you might have higher risk levels for alcohol use disorder and and, and you know stuff like that. Um, you're, you're talking, you know, well, Willing and Smith are saying that's above 200 nanograms per mil. Okay, I I disagree. I disagree with these categories, and I disagree with them for basically this reason. And O'Welling and Smith say this as well, so it's not like they're disagreeing with, with, with me at all. You can get to 200 nanograms per mil as someone who is a light to moderate drinker if you're drinking every day of your life for several days. You can get there. So I don't like their categories. Now, here's the thing, though. When you use the O'Welling and Smith paper, you actually, again, we have to put our critical thinking hats on. You know, wait a second. What is it that O'Welling and Smith were actually talking about? Who, who, who are, you know, why did they put this paper together? They put this paper together because they're trying to talk about people like what I used to be when I was at the army, people who work in a security environment, people who have secret, top secret clearances. So we're talking about people who have access to classified information. And specifically what O'Welling and Smith were talking about was, okay, in a security environment where you have people who have class, you know, access to classified information, people with secret and top secret clearances, 
you know, maybe you have, uh, you know, access to sensitive compartmentalized information, you know, any of these things. These people need to tell you the truth. And let me tell you, you get interviewed when, when you're going for your, you know, secret or your top secret or your SCI, you get asked questions about your drinking history. Do you drink? Do you do drugs? They ask you all these questions. How often do you drink? And what Owelling and Smith were talking about was, you know what? You could use PETH in the security environment when you are assessing individuals who have access to the sensitive information because you can use PETH to then say, now, now just wait a second here. Uh, you told me you don't drink. Like you told me you never drink. And I'm getting PETH levels that suggest that you drink daily. Right? That's what Owelling and Smith are talking about here. They're not talking about, hey, let's go use these PETH levels in family court. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about, hey, you can use these things in the security environment with people who have top secret secret, you know, and, and SCI type clearances. That's who they're talking about. They're talking about using PETH as a way to assess, are these people telling you the truth about their drinking history? That is how O'Willing and Smith intended for their PETH categories and everything else to be used is to help the person who is actually, you know, assessing whether or not this person is telling the truth about their drinking history. Now, again, even in that, even in that way, I still have issues with their categories that they have here that I just read to you about the light or no consumption, significant consumption, heavy consumption. I still have disagreements with those. I don't think that's the right way to use it. However, you know, to me, PETH does have a good use. There are some occupations where you absolutely positively can never drink, cannot drink. In those situations, yes, PETH is great. So if you have a situation where someone is not allowed to drink, even off duty, that's the people I'm talking about, even off duty, you can't, you can't drink, okay, because you're on call or whatever. Those individuals, yes, PETH is, PETH is very appropriate for them. If you have a teenager and you are worried about, you know, them drinking, you know, because you caught them once they're drinking and you know that they lied to you about that. And so now you're worried that they're going to lie to you again about their drinking habits. Go ahead, do blood draws and get their PETH. Absolutely. Personally, I'd probably do a urine test with ETG, but eh, you know, it, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't want, you know, people drawing blood on me. And I, I'd hate to, you know, draw my kids' blood for, for something like this when I could just, you know, have them take a pee test instead. But, you know, it, if you're really serious about it, uh, because maybe they got caught, you know, you know doing, D, if, if my kid got caught D&D UI, I tell you what, I have no qualms about drawing his blood and, and running a PETH test at that point, right? I, I have no problems going to LabCorp and saying, yep, I'm putting the money down for the PETH test. No problems if if he got caught with a DUI, but you know, here again, it's it's one of those things where the PETH test is is not it's not like a fine a fine tool, right? It's 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 a blunt instrument, so it can't tell me a lot of granular data about when somebody drank and how much they drank. It will not tell me those things. And Owelling and Smith also say the same thing. 
you really do need to know somebody's drinking history to properly interpret the PETH level, right? So it's not going to do you any good other than to say, you know, you are someone who has to be abstinent for your entire life. May, you know, then, yeah, sure, PETH, PETH is a great test. But, uh, but because of the long half-life, you know, the long period of time that it stays in our bodies, PETH is really a bad, bad way of doing this. And it has no place in family law unless the judge ordered that the person be clean and abstinent from alcohol, which, I mean, that's cool. If that's what the judge decides, go ahead and use PETH. PETH will be a great test for that. But if you're allowing someone to drink and, you know, you can drink when you don't have the child, but when you have custody of the child, you can't drink. PETH is not the right test for those kinds of situations. Uh, using a, a urine ETG test is probably going to be far better in those kinds of cases. So if you remember nothing else I said, remember this. If you're in family law, if you're a family law attorney, if you're getting wrapped up in a family law case, maybe you're a family law judge. I don't know. Don't use PETH unless the person has to be completely abstinent. If they can never drink, sure, PETH is a great way to go. But if you're allowing them to drink at all, PETH is not the way to go. So that and, what, $6 will buy a cup of coffee at uh, Starbucks, right? Anyway, uh, I wanted to put one last plug in. Um, So recently, I I, uh, joined a foundation called the Toxicology Education Foundation. And uh, it's at uh, toxedfoundation.org, T-O-X-E-D foundation.org. Toxed Foundation is a great group. I I just joined them. Uh, I'm on the board. Actually, I'm the secretary, looks like. And one of the things that we're trying to do is we want to try and make sure we're educating the public about toxicology in our daily lives. And we want to make sure that people understand not only what toxicology is, but, you know, that they get the right information so that they can make their own decisions about what's right for, their, for themselves and their families, right? So, you know, they, they helped me distribute the uh, Critical Science Podcast. Thank you, ToxEd Foundation, for that. Um, and, you know, we're, we're trying to raise money in order to continue to do more good. So I, I would just ask, you know, if you have some spare money, you know, small dollar donations are great. But if you have some extra money just lying around and you want to give to a good cause, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We're a charity. Uh, The Toxicology Education Foundation, consider giving a donation. Any amount helps um, with getting uh, the word out. And, you know, we actually have another podcast uh, through the uh, ToxEd Foundation um, with a high school near Cincinnati, Ohio. And that's called Now That's Good Chemistry. It's a podcast that uh, I think... um, yeah, you might enjoy and uh, definitely go find it. It's on Spotify. It's, it's basically everywhere where you can find uh, podcasts as well. But anyway, I think about giving a donation uh, to the toxedfoundation.org. Thank you. And um, with that, everyone, hey, have a great day. And uh, thanks for listening.